0: Hi, this is Seth Mosley, and you're listening to the Full Circle Music Show, the why of the music biz. Today on the show, we have with us in the studio, Brandon Heath. You've heard him on the radio. You've seen him on the Dove Awards. You know him as a Grammy nominee, and you've heard his songs at the top of the charts, number one songs like Give Me Your Eyes and I'm Not Who I Was. We're thankful that he's taken the time to stop in the studio and share with us just a little bit of his story and his journey of finding his way to where he is today as an artist, he also gets pretty open about the struggles of what it is like to be a signed artist and what it's like to try to write songs for a record and just be butting your head up against a wall. And to go through the creative process is not always the easiest thing, as a lot of people from the outside think. A lot of people think the artists just wake up and they write their record and turn it in and it's done. But if you're on the inside of the industry you know that that's not always the case, and this show is a very good living proof of that. Brandon opens up about his story and his struggles along the way, so there's a lot of good stuff to get out of this one. Before we get into the interview, just a quick announcement about the Music Makers Boot Camp. So maybe you've heard of our Music Makers Boot Camp. We've received rave reviews already, and you might have been able to attend one of ours. We do them from time to time, a couple times a year in Franklin, Tennessee. Good news is we have a waiting list up at fullcirclegoeslive.com because you'll be at the very front of the list and have priority access to tickets for the very next time that we announce one, which will be coming up very soon. So head over to fullcirclegoeslive.com. These events have been described as life-changing, as very helpful, as very tangible We try to get the best industry experts together under one roof to come and share their insights and knowledge about the music business so it doesn't have to be some big secret, some big mystery. So that's the Music Makers Boot Camp, a condensed weekend of intense learning and education and networking. So check that out. It's at fullcirclegoeslive.com. Get on the waiting list and don't miss your opportunity to get to the next one. Let's jump back into the studio where we're having a conversation with Brandon Heath. So Brandon Heath's here in the studio with us. He's in a better place. I'm in a better place. It's a good place to start. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I've known Brandon for probably been two, three years now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Worked on your last record a little bit with you.
1: Well, I'd say we recorded that last record in 15, and I think that we wrote early... No, we put it out in 15, but we recorded it in 14. So,
0: yeah. The way that I remember things is if you're sitting in my studio, my whole room is rotated 90 degrees now. Yes. And I remember I was sitting over there. And
1: when I came, your AC was broken. It was you
0: and Jeremy Camp. That was the week.
1: Yes. Yeah. It was 97 degrees in here. Yeah, it was sweltering. Which is really conducive (laughs) to creativity. (laughs) Cooks it right out of you. If you remember, we met... For lunch over at the country club.
0: I do remember it. You were with Ed Cash.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not a country club type of person. <laughs> and I thought, who is this dude who well, I'm not lunches really at
0: the country club? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really a country club type person either, but yeah. they have the best hamburger I've ever had anywhere.
1: It is an amazing hamburger.
0: And I'd pay the whatever fifty dollars a month to go eat their hamburger. Should we
1: so. say which country club so people can I guess they could
0: check it out. It's the West Haven Country Club. Yeah. So if you're ever in Franklin, Tennessee, it's not like you can just stop in, but you can imagine how good it is. It's really good. (laughs) Man, I was a fan of you for a lot longer than you realize, even before that. So I'd love to just kind of hear your story all the way back to the beginning, man. I know you're from Nashville.
1: I am a Nashville kid. I grew up in West Nashville. I was born, I'm not going to say what year, but my dad's native Nashvilleian. And my mom is from Waverly, Tennessee, which is about an hour and a half west of Nashville. Moved to Nashville when she was 18 to go into cosmetology. And she has been doing hair for almost 50 years. Wow. So, yeah, she's in her late 60s now. And so she moved here very young to start doing hair. And is not retired. My dad's a retired police officer. So I don't really come from music, but growing up in Music City, you know, you just kind of submerged in it. And when I was in high school, I had a couple of friends whose parents were in the country music business. And, you know, we would hang out at Jack's Tracks, which is where Garth Brooks did all of his records. And we'd go to their Christmas party every year. And, so it was just kind of cool to grow up around people who were not only successful at music, but making a living at music. You, know? you don't realize how many jobs there are in the whole music industry. I mean, people know about the artist, but they don't know about the producer, and they don't know about the manager, and they don't know about the promoter and the marketing team. And back then, they didn't know about duplicators and yeah. publishers. I mean, there's so many people who find work in the music business. I went to MTSU, Middle Tennessee State University, and I remember sitting in my first year of the recording industry program there. They call it RIM. And this is in 97. It's one of the few industries where we can guarantee you a job when you graduate. (laughs) And my, oh, my, (laughs) how things changed In a matter of five years, which it took me five years to graduate. I did not graduate with a recording industry degree. Funny enough, I realized halfway through, I did not want to go into engineering. Yeah. As I look at you, you're sitting in front of your (laughs) Pro Tools rig, and that's just never been my thing. I always wanted to be the guy in the booth, Mm -hmm. you know? just being creative but then when Pro Tools and this is pre Pro Tools yeah so when Pro Tools hit this stage I actually think now I regret not learning more because it's such a tool for creativity now yeah so anyway I graduated in oh five and I got a pub deal with Brentwood Benson I had been working at Young Life Camps every summer And Young Life is an outreach to high school kids, and I was the guy behind the sound booth. Bebo Norman was there as an artist, and I did his sound for about a month and became friends with Bebo. (laughs) Wow. I should tell a story about that. that (laughs) I would love
0: to hear that just because that sounds fascinating.
1: (laughs) It's a lesser known, pretty sure it's never been recorded, this story. (laughs) But Bebo, we were probably three weeks into the assignment and I finally got up the courage to tell Bebo that I wrote songs and I wanted to play him a few songs. And so we went into my cabin where I stayed, I was there all summer. I was there for four yeah, months yeah. and he came into the cabin. I mean, it was a mess, you know, we slept in bunk beds and I played him a couple of songs and he was really impressed. First of all, he's like, why didn't you tell me all this time that you wrote songs? And wow. We were sitting on the ground. I gave him my pillow. You know, I was like, here, you can sit on my pillow and no problem. He farts on my pillow (laughs) to be funny. That's amazing. (laughs) And that was the beginning of a long. No. So I got three cuts on his next record called Try. And it's the least performing record that he had at the time. I had the title track and a song called Soldier. So anyway, I ended up getting a pub deal. Yeah. So I owe Bebo a big debt of gratitude. When I graduated, yeah, I had a pub deal wow. right out of college. So the only real job I ever had was working at Starbucks, and yes, I consider that to be a real job. <laughs> I loved working at Starbucks. I just remember, you know, hearing music over the sound system behind the bar at the barista station and just wanted to do music yeah. so really thankful yeah for those early days
0: when you're working at starbucks i mean you kind of lived in nashville it's not like you made the move so was that through like the beginning of your pub deal years to kind of get you through or when was that
1: yeah i mean it was the last year of college which would have been o2 i was working at starbucks but i also met this guy named Matt Wertz mm. and I went to MTSU with a guy named Dave Barnes. Yeah, And so Dave was a great friend of mine. We wrote together even in college in the early 2000s and Dave introduced me to Matt and Matt was looking for a roommate. I was living in the upstairs of my parents' house and it was free. You know, I was twenty, twenty-two, twenty-three 22, 23 at the time. And Matt was like, man, you're too old to be living at home. You need to You need to be my roommate. <laughs> so I moved in with Wirtz over in Green Hills, and we lived there for like two years, and then he bought a house over in East Nashville before East Nashville. Well, East Nashville was just yeah. on the cusp. This is 05.
0: For listeners out there, East Nashville now is one of the most expensive places in all of Nashville. It's like hipster but, paradise. But it
1: used to be the ghetto. Yeah and where we lived is still kind of rough, you know. Sorry, some people are offended by the word ghetto, <laughs> but it's like it's a rough part of town, high crime. Sure. If you're watching the news at that time and this is not biased, but right. it was where the crime was happening yeah. on the news pretty yeah. much every night. We had in two different occasions we had bullets come through windows. of our room so we lived very close to a high crime area and it's real like it was real one night i was home by myself and i heard one of our back windows break and i called the cops i was like freaking out so i called the cops and a helicopter comes and i mean it was just some kids that throwing rocks at our house. You
0: Unbelievable. Know? They sent a helicopter as oh, yeah. opposed to a
1: <laughs> they sent a helicopter. Amazing. So the reason that I, I bring all that up, Wirtz and Barnes, both great friends. Matt would become my best friend and still is to this day, he was the best man in my wedding and wow. But they were emerging as indie artists at the time. Both believers in Jesus, but not really making Christian music. They were making more pop, you know, love songs. I was just seeing them emerge as very successful independent artists. This is also when the independent scene was really taking off as well. So I was thinking about going the indie route, but I also had a friend who was a producer by the name of Dan Muckala, and muck was working in the christian industry and so we started meeting about possibly working together
0: So, did you kind of give him a demo cd did he know you were an artist because that's the intimidating thing for a lot of people is like well how do you get your stuff out there do you just approach somebody and say hey i do music i write songs because yeah those are always kind of awkward conversations to have
1: it definitely took guts although you know it was in week three of working with bebo to go up to him and say, hey, I'm a songwriter. Could I share some songs? But it was not really to get a publishing deal. It was more, I want to share. I want you to hear what I create. Yeah. Because yeah. he gained my respect. From an artist's perspective, it's just wanting to share. Yeah. And maybe there's some need for validation. You sure. know? You're know, you a professional. Do you think I'm good? Sure. That kind of thing. Yeah. So how I met muckala i was actually in a men's group with him at my church we went to church together and i would lead worship every once in a while at my church and and i'll say this i enjoyed leading worship but what i enjoyed more is writing more from an autobiographical Mm -hmm. standpoint and i was writing a lot of love songs at the time you know and just things that were important to me and of course my faith was important to me but I didn't want to necessarily be limited to only talking about my faith. I wanted to talk about my struggles and, you know, people with faith have struggles, but we don't often write about them in our songs that go commercial.
0: Sure. Let's park there for a minute. Why do you think that is?
1: I think when people turn on the radio, I think they want to be encouraged. They've only got a little time in their car and I don't think they necessarily have the time to invest where you go to a really deep, hard place. Mm. At least I think that is the perception. Yeah. I disagree. I think people find artists who they trust, and they will go there with that artist, mm. even if it's not a two-way conversation.
0: So you think radio has ultimately kind of, in the Christian space been the reason for that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I think there's even people within the radio world that would agree. Mm. You know, at the end of the day, they want to serve the listener, which you can't fault them for that. Yeah. But I think the listener they need to be a little bit more vocal about what they want to hear, you know? And if they hear a song that really challenges them, and they want to hear more of that, they should write into their local radio station. Just say, hey, I want more of that song. Yeah. Because a lot of times, I think the radio programmers and music directors either assume or they also do testing. And in testing, they'll have like a test market and people sign up for that. Mm -hmm. They'll hear 30 seconds of a song, or maybe 15, which is not a lot of time if you think about it. Right. To decide if you like a song or not, it's more sonic mm. than it is message.
0: Yeah, because if you're writing autobiographical songs, <laughs> <and> <laughs> you lyrics, need to stick around for the story. Takes a little more development than hey, here's my elevator pitch.
1: My first single that went number one was "I'm Not Who I Was." If you study songwriting, even if you're going to school and literally studying songwriting, mm. songwriting 101 will tell you that you need to have a chorus mm. and you need to have a hook. And a hook is basically a line that is repeated that literally hooks you. I'm not who I was had a hook, but it didn't have a chorus.
0: Yeah.
1: And so it broke some rules. If I was gonna, like on day one of songwriting 101, I would say all of these are suggestions, but mm. they're not rules. Mm. They're just suggestions. Yeah. I think in songwriting is where we should be making and breaking rules. Yeah. You know, making new rules and yeah. a format should be played with and not stuck to.
0: Sure. You know? Sure.
1: So those are all things that in my experience, the more that I've broken the rules, the more success I've had.
0: So Let's talk about that song. I'm not who I was because the hook is not even really a lyric. It's just the doo-doo-doo, doo-doo-doo, right. Yeah. So, was there a debate on, hey, do we release that to radio? Was it a big discussion within the label or what? what Funny was enough,
1: like? it was not a big discussion. My first single was a song called Our God Reigns, which, you know, the hardcore fans of mine know that song and remember it. And it was a top 10 Mm -hmm. song. And for a new artist, that's actually really great.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: And this was in a time when not a lot of new artists were breaking. Mm -hmm. But my label, I was with Provident, and I'm still with Provident. They put that out as the first single. But I have to give them a lot of credit. Mm -hmm. Whoever it was, I also have to give my management team a lot of credit because I think they were suggesting... I'm Not Who I Was because it was so unique. Mm. It was kind of a country lick on guitar yeah, with a hip-hop beat to it. And that credit goes to Dan Muckala, who I mentioned earlier. He became my producer and has produced most of my records. But Dan is responsible for helping me develop my sound. And Dan was really working a lot in pop music at the time with the Backstreet Boys and Mandy Moore, a few other emerging, well, Backstreet was pretty established at the time. I actually played acoustic on some Backstreet songs, which is hilarious. If you look me up on AllMusic, you'll see. (laughs) That's your credit. That's your
0: your claim to fame.
1: Yeah, I was just, like I said, I was in men's Bible study with Muck, and then I would come in and do a guitar every once in a while.
0: That's amazing.
1: Yeah, Muckala put that beat on there, and so it was this country lick with a hip-hop beat, yeah. And a very earnest, you know, my voice was very much my speaking voice. Nothing put on about it. And it just seemed really genuine. And I still, to this day, get more emails about that song than hmm. than any other song wow. I've ever written. Wow. Yeah,
0: That's so fascinating. So you talked a little bit about developing your sound. I think a lot of artists maybe listening to this are kind of curious about that process. What did that look like for you with sort of, you know, air quotes, finding your sound? Was that you and Dan just kind of? sitting that a bunch was of stuff.
1: that was a lot of trust in dan being in men's group with him we'd already gone pretty deep mm. about life yeah. and he was actually going through a dark time in his life so we were really close friends yeah. and so when he wants to invest in me as an artist and he believes in me as an artist can't duplicate that right you know what i mean and he was already a very good producer Mm -hmm. so it just was a very and i know that i'm really fortunate about this because everybody has their own approach on how to break into the industry but my advice to people is if you follow the principles of jesus just serve Mm. and it will come back to you don't serve in the capacity to receive serve to learn and give away.
0: Yeah, that's that's good. So, did you guys kind of have some sort of an official like production deal agreement or was it more just let's work on stuff?
1: We did and still do actually. Yeah. I mean, he's a good businessman too. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> he's not just he's a great friend, but he's also a really good business person. Sure. You know, I think in the front end as a producer, if you're going to invest in somebody and not necessarily know if you're going to make any kind of financial return, I think it's fair yeah. to ask for some sort of financial investment into that artist. Sure. And so I've never, I don't blame him at yeah. all because, yeah. you know, he didn't know if he was going to get his money back or not.
0: Right. You've got on one hand, I guess I could go work on a Backstreet Boys thing or develop this thing. Yeah. So, yeah. That makes sense.
1: So we've got a production deal to this day, and he's been a part of every record. Well, he wasn't really part of my Christmas record. I did that with Ben Shive. Great producer, by the way. Oh, man. Great producer, great songwriter. Mm-hmm. We've been writing on my newest record. My previous record, to the one that I'm working on right now, I did with Ed Cash, yeah, which is another amazing story. Yeah, I'll tell it in 30 seconds. <laughs> I met Ed when I was 16 years old, and I wanted to do a record based on the summer that I met Jesus, which was 1995. So I met Ed that summer, mm. and Ed has come to be a great producer, and so I asked Ed to produce. Well, I wrote Only Just Met You. Yeah. It was going to be yeah. called Only Just Met You, yeah. the record. Yeah. But we called it No Turning Back. So Ed did that record, but I'm back with Muckala working on my seventh studio record with Provident.
0: Yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, as we're kind of wrapping up, we always talk a lot about, I feel like one of the emerging themes of Full Circle Music Show is the struggle behind the scenes that most people are really kind of oblivious to. I think there's a perception that as a great artist like you are, that you just wake up you have this idea, you write a song, call the producer, say, let's record it, and then put it out on radio. But there's a lot more to it than that. You're one of the few that can wake up and write a great song. It's great, you know? But talk a little bit about what the process has been like.
1: I'm also the kind that can wake up and have no idea what I'm going to write and Mm. literally not write anything, Mm. you know? I mean, I think that it's important to understand that there's two sides to everything. I'm not Christopher Walken and I don't put my pants on like Christopher Walken and make gold (laughs) records. You know, I love that you have your sign behind us and I'm sure other people have noticed it. Dare to suck. You know, I think you have to be willing to fail Hmm. and fail and then not let it get to you, you know, and there are some days that it does. You know, I made a record about five years ago called blue mountain that Muckala was the producer of and, He was like trying to talk me out of it. The label didn't get it. My label's happy that I made it now, but it did not fit the format that we've been talking about. Mm. But I just felt like it was the record that I needed to make. I still feel like it's the best songwriting Mm. I've done to date.
0: Wow. Why was Muckle trying to talk you out of it?
1: Because he wasn't sure that my record label would know what to do with it. And he was absolutely right. Yeah. You know, they're in the Christian music business. They know how to do that, but they don't know how to do alt country slash Americana. Right. At the time, the Avett brothers were really big. Mumford and Sons was doing really well on pop radio. Mm -hmm. So I felt like it was time to go there. Yeah. For me, it was, and I have no regrets. Mm but that was kind of a decline in my record sales, in my radio success. I don't know that necessarily is all on me, but I think it would be a mistake to point fingers at other people as well. Sure. So I'll take it. Yeah. You know, I'll take the blame yeah. for that. So if you want to talk about struggle,
0: yeah,
1: I was very fortunate to just, at the very beginning, take off like a rocket. Mm-hmm. But if you want to have longevity in your career, you have to reinvent and you have to be willing to take risks yeah. and you have to grow. And so, so I've felt those growing pains the last five years and I'm really thankful for the hard days. I'm still in the hard days, man. There was a time where I could send, not to be cocky, but I just felt like I could send anything to radio and it would go number one, and it did for a while. But I think maybe that's why God was like, oh, oh, so that's how you feel about it. (laughs) (laughs) Try this. And then all of a sudden it didn't work. And so I feel like I'm in a more realistic place now and a, a place of humility, which is a great place to be from. I think you definitely should go in with Confidence when you go to write, even when you know you might write a bad song or you're probably going to write a bad song. There's also days when you mentioned earlier, you go in, you write a song, you record it, it goes number one. That actually also happens. Yeah. You know, when it's that easy. Yeah. But most of the time, it does not happen that way. Yeah. So it can happen that way, but most of the time it doesn't. And I also think what I'm learning now is that if you put a little more time into your craft don't be afraid to edit Mm. i don't like to edit i'll be the first to admit it (laughs) i'm kind of the guy that's like the first instinct is the right instinct yeah but
0: a lot of the time that's true but i agree you're totally right i think it's more about the exercise of actually being willing to say what if we rewrote that chorus or this was a slow song what if we made it a fast song or just trying different stuff i think it's part of the the journey
1: I'm very thankful that I've been able to do this for this is my 12th year on a label mm. so on a larger platform.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm very thankful. I know that it's rare. Mm-hmm. I know that it's you know a lot of times people can have one song and then they're done. I've also had a song a single to go platinum, which is also a very rare thing wow. anymore. That's huge. Yeah. I mean it's called Give Me Your Eyes. Yeah. That is to this date, my career song, yeah. I'm really thankful for it. I know other guys have had career songs that they're like, oh, man, did it have to be that song? But give me your eyes. I'm so proud of it. Yeah. I wrote that with Jason Ingram. I think it was Jason's, if not his first number one, yeah. I think it was one of his very first number ones. And Jason has gone on to a lot of success. And right. so I've been writing a lot with Jason again. And that's been really cool, you know? Yeah. We wrote back in 03, he had just finished as an artist. He didn't have a very successful run as an artist, but man, he's been maybe the biggest songwriter in Christian music history. He's had a ton of number ones, but a lot of songs that are being sung in the church. So when you fail, you can come back as something bigger and something that maybe you enjoy because he gets to be home, you know? So failure is definitely something that you should feel the impact of, but don't let it discourage you. Hmm. It's not the end. Just reinvent, stay true to who you are, and you never know how God will use that.
0: Yeah, That's good, man. Brandon, thanks so much for taking the time to do this today. It was awesome.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Hi, this is Seth Mosley. You've been listening to the Full Circle Music Show, the why of the music biz. If you haven't already done so, head over to fullcirclegoeslive.com to get on the waiting list for our upcoming Music Makers Bootcamp. Don't miss your spot. If you sign up there, you get priority access to the first tickets as soon as they become available. This show is produced by the Full Circle Music Company with editing help from Jericho Scroggins. We will see you on the next episode.